0: turn on our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Sunday morning we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we'd like everybody to have a Bible. There are men coming up the aisles with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands this morning. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be looking specifically at verses 5 through 11. Let's pick it up in verse 1 to reestablish our context a little bit. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you're still carnal. For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal in behaving like mere men, like the world? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers, through whom you believed, as the Lord gave each one hope? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let, him take, let each one take heed how he builds on it, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage in your word. We thank you for the eternal and the spiritual thing that it is intended to accomplish in our lives as your children and as citizens of your kingdom And, Lord, we want every part of your word to impact our relationship with you, our witness for you in this world. And so we pray that you would open up this passage to us and let it fashion us into the image of Christ. Our thinking, our feeling, Lord, our doing, everything about our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Let the totality of our lives be impacted by your heart and the importance of what you have bound up in these verses, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The church at Corinth was made up largely of carnal people. They were Christians, absolutely on their way to heaven, but they were carnal in that the dominant influence in their life, the dominant influence coming out of their life was not the Holy Spirit, but their nature from Adam and Eve, their fallen nature from uh, Adam and Eve. And that's why the church at Corinth had so many problems. Surely the most miserable kind of church to be a part of is a church that is uh, made up of carnal people, people who are deliberately carnal. and, uh, And it certainly is one of the hardest groups of people to ever pastor. And it's always a mistake to cater to the carnality or the flesh of people in order to grow a church um, because uh, carnal people are always going to divide they're always going to split it's always going to be divisions it's always going to be problems and uh, and, uh, and i'm not speaking to any local situation if you're visiting with us today say wow what's this guy upset about something no we're just heading right through the Bible. But this church was a a very, very carnal church because it was carnal. It had a lot of problems, and that's why the book of 1 Corinthians is known as a corrective epistle. From one end to the other, Paul is correcting a lot of different things that all of it came out of their carnality. And one of the marks of their carnality was the division that had occurred among the Christians there based upon which of God's servants or pastors or leaders uh, in the church was their favorite. And Paul addressed this a little bit in chapter 1, but he brings it up again here in this chapter in verse 4. And so again, by way of reminder, the, the Christians at Corinth, the church there, they were dividing into camps within the church based upon who their favorite leaders were within the church as opposed to being supremely all about Jesus and then being grateful, as they, all of us should be, for every leader and every Christian who is being faithful to God's call uh, upon their life. There's no need to choose between one or the other. They're all ours, and they're all ours to be thankful for. And once a church or an individual Christian becomes consumed, as Corinth was, with individual personalities, the human instruments that God is graciously using for His glory, then it's an indication that their eyes have been taken off of Jesus. And people start thinking more of the minister than they think of the master, and they begin to talk more about their denomination or their non-denomination than Jesus. And most divisions that occur in a local church over favorite ministers are carnal in nature. And as is the case with most divisions that occur in the larger body of Christ, whether uh, denominationally or non-denominationally, worldwide. And the reason that these kind of divisions occur within the body of Christ, and we even give labels and titles to all of this, and the reason that it's carnal and not of the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit will never produce these kinds of divisions within a church. He simply will not do it. And Paul, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, in all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through us all in, in you all, and so the Holy Spirit is always working to unite his people, whether in a local church or whether Christians around the world, us being united with the other churches in this community and in this state and in this country and clear around the whole world. And usually when we divide into our camp, whatever that camp might be, we do so with the the kind of self-confidence that our camp is better than all of the other camps or we're just slightly better than all of them. And so we're not content to be known just as Christians. We want people to know that we're a certain kind of Christian so that they don't mistake us with a crazy uncle in the family or some section of the body of Christ that you know, they might feel a little bit embarrassed over. And so we don't want people thinking that we are like them and so we become a denomination or an affiliation out of our sense of superiority. And the problem with all of this is that God doesn't know anything about it and Jesus certainly doesn't know anything about it and He's not interested in producing this. Among His people, Jesus spoke in, uh, in His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, as He prayed to the Father. He said, "I do not pray for those these alone, speaking of the disciples who were with Him, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. That's you and me this ro- in this room today. And here's His prayer: that they may all be one, as You, Father." Are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So, a truly spiritual person will have a love and a concern for the rest of the body of Christ. And we will want to be identified with all Christians who know and love the Lord Jesus. As I've mentioned before, G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great preachers of the last and expositors of the Bible, teachers of the Bible in the last century, he declared that from his experience that the uh, more spiritual a man was, the less denominational he was. And I believe that that's very, very true. I was reading a book recently that had a couple of quotes uh, in this vein And one of the quotes uh, was by John Wesley, who was kind of the catalyst in the Methodist awakening, and he's quoted as uh, having said in the 1700s. He said, Would to God that all party names and unscriptural phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgot. I should rejoice if the very name Methodist might never be mentioned more, but be buried in eternal oblivion. Wow. Charles Spurgeon, uh, known as uh, the Prince of Baptist Preachers, said from the pulpit, he said, I say of the Baptist name, let it perish, but let Christ's name last forever. And I look forward with pleasure to the day when there will not be a Baptist living. Wow. And it's all in, in the theme of this particular passage. And I think the longer we walk with the Lord, the older we get in the Lord, the more we understand the sentiments behind all of that and how small these divisions are that are sometimes put into place in comparison to Christ and the price that He paid to make us one body and to make us one family. I think that the strength of what John Wesley said and Charles Spurgeon said uh, is there because so often these divisions are carnal. They are born out of this competitiveness, out of a sense of superiority. And when I have a sense of superiority related to the rest of the body of Christ, um, that gives off a particular vibe and it's always going to produce conflict within the body of Christ. I think about, I've been a pastor for 28 years, all of them here in Modesto. And in the 28 years that I've been a pastor, not only in Modesto, but um, in terms of what's happened in the body of Christ in the United States as a whole, and I suspect worldwide, is that these divisions have really softened and weakened. And it's a wonderful thing. I think that fewer and fewer people are staunchly a part of some denomination or some non-denomination in terms of this is where I was born and this is where I will die. There are people that are like that, but most people today, and it's a wonderful freedom that God's people feel today, they feel the freedom to go to any particular church, walk in and say, I sense the Holy Spirit is in this place and that I'm able to worship Him. I'm pointed to God here and I feel like I hear His voice in this place and then to choose to become a part of that church. And it's all in line with what Paul is going to bring out a little bit later in this very same chapter, and that is that all of it belongs to you. All of the churches in this community, they belong to your heavenly Father. They belong to you. They belong to me. I can use them however I want to grow in my relationship with the Lord. And what is true of the churches in this community is true of all of the churches all around uh, the world. Now, there is, of course, a natural tendency to have favorite kind of human instruments whom God uses and, uh, in, in our lives. And sometimes somebody becomes a favorite of ours or one of our favorites because we hear God's voice through them in a way that we may not hear God's voice through Another instrument, and so we read their commentaries, or we read their devotionals, or we download their sermons, or we attend that particular uh, church and and uh, and this is why we have favorites sometimes there 's nothing wrong with that, and saying, "Listen, this person really ministers to me in in this way, and all of that is fine it 's okay to speak of that, but we 're never to allow our favorites or our denomination to become our focus or to cause us to think that we're superior to other Christians as a result. And we certainly don't need to enjoy one instrument that God is using and then find it necessary to put down all others as a result. And that's kind of what was happening at Corinth. It wasn't enough that... I am of Paul, but now because I am of Paul, in order to justify my position, I've got to put down Apollos or Cephas or anybody else that's involved in the church and those that follow them. And there's no need uh, to do that. And Paul is letting them know that. So because the church at Corinth was so badly divided over who their favorite ministers were, that Paul then Gave them and gave, gives us a lesson on how to view God's servants or his ministers in a way that is spiritual rather than carnal. And he tells us first in verse 5 that concerning any human instrument that God uses, that they are ministers, simply ministers. <clears throat> and the word minister that's used <clears throat> in verse 5 in the original language, the Greek, it literally means a slave. That's what the word means. And the word, the particular Greek word that's used for slave there speaks of the lowest slave in a household in those days, the slaves that uh, cleaned the house or the slaves that washed people's feet when they came uh, to somebody's uh, house. And so he's talking of the lowest positions of servanthood. That's the word that he used concerning himself and concerning Apollos. I think about many, many years ago, I remember being at a, a, a conference, pastor's conference, and hearing Pastor Chuck Smith teach related to ministers simply being servants and never losing sight of that fact. And uh, a servant meaning being a slave. And he used the uh, hypothetical situation of the minister who flies into an airport and then um, as his bags are being uh, come to the baggage claim area and all he expects somebody else to carry his bags after all he is the minister and uh, so Chuck brought out the fact that that's uh, inconsistent it's, I won't carry bags I'm the minister I won't carry bags I'm a slave I mean it's a, it, to get into that mindset is to completely lose sight of what minister means in the Bible and so we'll carry our own bags uh, as a result of being a minister and carry other people's bags as well. Now, it doesn't mean that if somebody wants to carry your bag from the airport that you can't let them. The Bible says it, it's better; it, it, it's a more blessed to give than to receive. I remember one time I was in India and uh, the bags came in and then there were some several Indian brothers that were there and they went to grab the bags and We wanted to show there's a group of us that we could carry our own bags and all. And uh, one of the guys took us aside and said, uh, they like to carry your bags, don't rob them of the blessing. We know you can carry your bags. But it's the whole thought of of the willingness to be able to do that. And and that's how Paul uh, saw things. We're just Christians, just people who are getting our orders from God and obeying those orders just like any other Christian. And so clearly Paul did not want the church at Corinth or any church anywhere to put him on some kind of a pedestal, and uh, he didn't want to be thought of as any more than this, as just simply being a servant. So he's telling them, and he's also telling us, never to give undue attention or undue importance to the human instrument that God is using to do His work. It doesn't mean we disrespect uh, God's servants. There are some people who feel that they have to do that as kind of a test for those that serve the Lord, lest they get big-headed. God has a way of introducing His thorn in the flesh, whatever the form might be, and anybody He uses to keep them humble. And so we can be free to encourage those that are being faithful, the God's call upon their life. The Bible tells us that we are to respect their position, respect them as a person, and that's an important thing to do as well. But the Apostle Paul here completely dispels any idea that there should be any kind of a cult of personality within Christianity. And I think I might have mentioned this several weeks ago, um, but I might uh, I will mention again just in case Um, I didn't. I think all pastors, and especially younger pastors today, really have to be aware of this and where uh, we can feel that because the culture is what it is today, uh, that God needs a little bit of help in terms of Uh, hipness or being culturally relevant you know within the the culture and so the pastor decides that he needs to become everything that he thinks God isn't and so he becomes hip he becomes cool the most painful thing to witness in all of life is to watch an uncool person try to be cool and uh, and most Christians are and I are a good two to five years lagging behind whatever the current hypnosis is in the culture. Pastors are even worse. They're at a 10-year lag. So by the time they get the lingo down, word, you know, they're just kind of, they're listening to that famous Irish rapper, <clears throat> the Cammer, and uh, still doing that. So it's just it's a painful, painful thing to watch. But sometimes a person thinks that, all right, God isn't cool enough in the Bible. The Holy Spirit can't make him cool enough or relevant enough. And so I'm going to do that for him. And so they begin to draw people to themselves and to their personality. And then we can justify it in our minds by saying, I will draw them to me. And then after I draw them to me, I will then point them to God. And it's a very dangerous thing to do because so often we can end up drawing people to ourselves and then kind of conveniently forget to point them to God in the progression. And the Apostle Paul here, even the Apostle Paul, he's not interested in anything like that at all. He wants everybody to think highly, think much of God, think much of Jesus, and he can disappear. And uh, he wasn't interested in having some kind of a cult of personality, and to do that kind of a thing, Paul tells us, is a great mistake, because it's to build a church then on something that is very, very frail, very, very faulty, rather than on the sure foundation of Christ. And I think the Holy Spirit knows very well how to God how to make God attractive and relevant. And I, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but by the time I was Ready in my life at the age of 25 to settle the issue of Jesus's lordship in my life, Um, whether God was cool or hip (laughs) or this were not factors in my mind. Was he a rescuer? (laughs) Could he save someone like me? Uh, Would he have something to do with someone like me? I mean, I didn't care whether he wore a Nehru jacket or a Levi poncho, or had a sheep over his shoulder, or any of those kind of things. Other things are more important than that. Jesus said, when a dispute arose between his disciples over which one of them should be considered the greatest, he said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. That's the way the world operates. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But it shall not be so... Among you, he tells us as Christians. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs is he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves, is not he who sits at the table. And Jesus said, and yet I am among you as one who serves. And it's important to realize that if I think that I'm too important to do anything that the Lord uh, tells me to do or that needs to be done, Uh, No matter how low it might be or how inconspicuous the service might be, if I refuse to do that, then I become more important than the Lord Jesus himself. Now, it doesn't happen very often, but once in a while it's happened through the years where someone will come into the church, usually a man, and, um, and he may have tremendous calling and tremendous gifting on his life. And he will come into the church, he'll get settled in, He will feel like this is where he's supposed to be, and now he wants to begin to serve the Lord in some capacity there. So he'll approach one of the pastors, or he'll approach me, and what he typically has in mind is like doing announcements on Sunday morning, leading home fellowship, being the senior pastor in three weeks. How are you feeling, Pastor? (laughs) So he's looking for something very, very prominent. And then we'll say something like, well, You know, after the morning services, this place gets a little bit dirty and a little bit messy. We've got an evening service, and we like to have everything clean and ready to go for God's people when they come back here in the evening, have everything just right. We like to tend the flock that way. And so, boy, if you could clean up, uh, empty some garbage cans and clean windows or do something like that between the services, that would sure be a great thing. And if the person balks, then we balk. Because everyone is just simply a servant, and no matter what our role is, whether it's my role or anybody else's role, whatever need comes before us, then none of us are too good to meet that need, whatever it might be. And so, that's the attitude, and that's the that's the attitude that the Apostle Paul had. It was the attitude that uh, Jesus had, and um, so. This is, uh, you know, the safeguard to be a servant. And so Paul is telling us again that we shouldn't give undue importance to or attention to the human instrument God uses to do His work, no matter how mightily God uses that man or that woman or how famous they might be. One of the signs that I have given a person, a human instrument in the body of Christ a greater uh, a, a place of undue um, influence in my life is is if they were to falter or stumble in their relationship with the Lord, that that would then stumble me. Should never do that. There isn't a single person in this whole wide world that if today I went home and I went on the internet or went somewhere and I read about them falling into sin and being disqualified for what God had called them to do that would rattle or, or jar me in my own relationship with the Lord. It would sadden me. It would break my heart. And I would begin to pray related to the situation. But it would not, it, it would not impact me because I don't allow people to become my foundation. Jesus is supposed to be solely our foundation. And oftentimes Christians will do this, where someone that they looked up to, someone they respected, somehow they did something or they said something, and you got a chance to see their feet of clay, uh, that the best of men are men at best, And you get disillusioned over that. And the reason that we get disillusioned is because we're building a foundation in an unhealthy way upon a human instrument and we're going to be set up to be disappointed. And so sometimes, so we expect perfection of people, so sometimes God will allow us to see somebody's feet of clay, not so that we'll say, we saw your feet of clay, we saw your feet, or be stumbled by that, but just to realize, oh, I need to keep my eyes solely and supremely upon the Lord Jesus who will never disappoint us and who will never fail us. And if that's you this morning, you need to realize that you can blame in your Christian life, all the rest of your life, you can blame these other people for what they were or they weren't, but the fact of the matter that it rocked your world was a work of grace in your life, to move you away from a a foundation that was unhealthy and to get you probably from a lesson learned the hard way to never give man a position that belongs only uh, to God in our lives. And it's a hard lesson, but it's an important lesson. We appreciate God's servants. We appreciate how He uses them. We appreciate their dedication and, and their hard work and their commitment but um, we're never ever to give them a bigger place than than God intends them to have. He tells us second in verse 5, he speaks of these servants as those through whom you believed. And notice he says through whom, not by whom. And so Paul and Apollos, here, are these really great men that God used in the early church and they were the means by which people heard the gospel. They became Christians. They were the messengers. But it was God who bore witness to the message of the gospel in a person's heart and gave life to that gospel and then made, drew that person into the kingdom of God. And in everyday life, we should never elevate the... Uh, w- I said in every, everyday life, we would never elevate the instrument being used above the master that's using the instrument, but we're very prone to it spiritually, aren't we? If you ever have a surgery and you wake up, it's a weird thing, isn't it? You wake up, where have I been? Can I come in there? I'm debating whether I'm going to say something or not. No, I'm not going to say it. See, I'm growing. I've got to deal with pride. Just allow me a moment to humble myself before the Lord. But when a surgeon performs a magnificent surgery upon our life and then comes in to visit us in the room later in recovery or probably in a different room after a little while, we're so happy to see the surgeon and talk with him. Nobody says, could you show me the scalpel? I want to just praise and thank that scalpel. We don't do that because we realize the scalpel is just an instrument in the hand of, of the master. And the same thing happens when you go to a concert and you hear somebody who's able to play a piano or to play a guitar in a way that just takes you off into another world. And after the concert, if somebody offered you a chance to go into the room and see the piano or go into the room and see the artist, which would we choose? (laughs) We'd go in and see the artist every time. We realize that's the genius behind the instrument that got used. Or you read somebody who's a great author, and as you read them, I mean, their mind, their ability to capture something, the world that they're able to draw you in, the truth that they're able to reveal to you, we marvel at the in, we we marvel at the master that's able to produce the book. We would never worship the book or kiss the book. We would never ask the book to sign itself. We'd ask the author uh, to sign the book. And yet, sometimes we forget that when we carry it over into the body of Christ and in spiritual things. When I was a new Christian, they had a movie out at that time. It was called The Touch of the Master's Hand. Maybe some of you remember that. Uh, might have been old even when I was a new Christian. It seemed like it, but it was great. And you know, I mean, it could do. It could use some updating. You know, maybe some car crashes. And uh, I'm just kidding. It was a very very simple film with a very simple message. And here was this master violinist, and uh, here was this violin. It, you know, an, a very average violin, and, and yet he took it into his hands and what he was able, the music he was able to bring out of so simple and humble of an instrument, and it really drove home in a beautiful way, ministry-wise, in my own heart, and and uh, in our lives too as well, that the master is everything. He's the one that makes uh, such, you know, humble, simple vessels as us, something that is Uh, powerful. Apart from him, we really could do nothing. Paul also tells us in this passage in verse 5 that it's important that we don't uh, compare ourselves with one another. Each of us has a different calling. He says, as the Lord gave to each one. Paul and Apollos were very different men, very, very different men, with very different callings on their lives, very different means of 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 expression and style. And all that was exactly as God intended it to be. And I think it's very, very important to remember that. No minister uh, or church is going to be right for everyone, but they're right for someone. And again, someone who doesn't necessarily click for me, you know, spiritually in terms of opening things up for me, they can be absolutely life-changing. And a different personality and in a different kind of uh, of person, and so there 's need for great diversity among god 's servants and even among his churches. some uh, instruments that God uses there are more of this and less of that, others are more of that and less of this, and all of it 's okay because God has intended it to be that way, and he 's okay with it, but we forget about it, and sometimes we think. We have to choose the one that we think ministers to our best and then again put down everybody else. And the Lord really isn't interested in that and there's no need to, to do that. And we need to remember that just, to, that just because someone doesn't click for me isn't, doesn't mean that the trouble is with them. The trouble could very well be with me. Again, I think about uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, who spoke again years ago on a pastor's conference. And he, was, he made the comment, and he said, The sooner you realize that uh, the church that you pastor isn't going to be right for everyone, uh, the more uh, peace filled you're going to be. And that's the truth. No one church is right for everyone. You have some people who are highly emotional people and they want a highly, highly emotional experience in a church service with God. So much so that it can make a different kind of personality a very, very uncomfortable. And, and so there are churches that are highly emotional. There are churches that are highly liturgical. People like safe. They like to see the same thing Every week, the same prayers read, uh, the same, as the old saying goes, the same bells and smells, the service never alters, it never changes, it never has for 2,000 years. They like that, they like that continuity, it makes them feel safe. And so there's liturgical churches. And on and on, we could give several examples uh, related to all of that. And God has ser- servants that are as diverse as the needs and the personality of His uh, people. I remember as a relatively new Christian, I'd love to use illustrations from your life, but I haven't lived them and I didn't call you yesterday to get them, so you're stuck with mine. I remember when I was a relatively new Christian, I bought at great expense to myself. I mean, things are much cheaper now because you just get them on the computer, but books were very, very expensive. And I got a... Uh, multi-volume set of Matthew Henry's uh, commentaries. And I tried and I tried and I tried to read Matthew Henry, and I just couldn't connect. I mean, there was just zero traction. Years later, I heard a recording of Warren Wiersbe speaking at a pastor's conference concerning this very area of diversity among God's servants. And who does he mention but uh, Matthew Henry? And he says, I bought a set of Matthew Henry's commentaries, and I tried to read them. He said, I couldn't read them. All I could think about were the dead bones in the book of Ezekiel. (laughs) And I understood exactly what Matthew Henry was saying. And yet, recently I was reading the autobiography of F.W. Borum, and uh, buy anything you can by Borum and read it. Uh, but by F.W. Borum, famous pastor, he, the, the, the saying that's said of him, he's the most famous author you've never heard of as a Christian, and it's true. Pastor to New Zealand and a pastor also to Australia. And uh, But I read his autobiography, and he declared how later in life he avidly read Matthew Henry's commentaries from Genesis to Revelation and just a matter of of a few months and yet if you knew anything about F.W. Borum if you do know something about him you would think that no two people would be more incompatible. I mean this uh, very creative mind that uh, F.W. Borum has the sanctified creativity that he had. You'd have thought that Matthew Henry would have been the last commentary he would have ever connected with and yet he connected so powerfully with it. And all of it's really a mystery to us. And the spiritual Christian will rejoice in all of it, but the carnal Christian will feel the necessity to put down everything that doesn't exactly, isn't exactly kind of their cup of tea. And Paul warns against it. He tells them forth that their uh, ministries of, Apostle, of Apollos and Paul, that their ministries were complementary And everybody's ministry that's serving the Lord is complementary. He said, I planted and Apollos watered in verse 6. and verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one. And he uses agricultural imagery here. We're familiar with that in the Central Valley. Someone has to plan and then someone has to water or else you're not going to have a crop. If everyone planted and no one watered, you don't have a crop. If everyone watered and no one planted, you don't have a crop. You've got to have diversity in the body of Christ. You've got to have diversity in agriculture, of activity and focus and and, uh, attention. And the same thing is true about the body of Christ. No other servant can be fully successful without uh, the other. And again, the importance of the diversity in the body of Christ. No one can do everything, but together with other Christians we can uh, we can accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. So think about how terrible it would be if everyone was the same in the body of Christ. Sometimes the diversity can drive you crazy, especially in the early, you know, years of a Christian's life. it the lack of appreciation sometimes for the diversity. But then after a while, you think of how boring it would be if everyone was like me or everyone was all ministry or all churches were the same or... You know, it just would be boring. It would be monotonous. And so it takes all different kinds of people and different kinds of gifting. I think about our worship ministry here at the church. As a senior pastor, I'm involved in um, the selection of songs that we introduce for worship here uh, in the church. And I've mentioned it before, but not every song that we sing is a favorite of mine. Um, I sing them as unto the Lord. Some of them are a little bit of a sacrifice of praise that I make to the Lord. They don't quite you know, they don't quite say what I want to say to him in the way that I would want to say it to him or I don't really sense maybe that that's such a big deal to say that to him. I'm not saying that I'm right in it, but sometimes that's the way that that I can feel. So, I approve all kinds of songs that may not necessarily connect strongly for me because there's the realization there's a lot of diversity in this body, and so you okay, approve a song that's a little bit maybe it's okay, you know. I I don't know. It's okay. Let's let's try it and see what God does with it. And we put it out there, and then half the room is standing and you know, raised hands, raised and all. And I said, well, okay, I guess I, I didn't have that one figured out very well, and uh, and and so there's there's that kind of a thing. Or sometimes you uh, a song where you really don't. Uh, connect with and then you'll run into a very very deep trial and then that song that you you know looked at so slightly uh it becomes your best friend it's the song that the lord keeps bringing back to your mind to get you through the trial lord did that recently in my life it's a song i thought well okay listen okay it's okay it's okay people like it it's okay i'll be happy when the next song starts And then I hit this thing that happens in my life, and then that's the very song that the Lord used to get me through those days of that particular trial. And it's just the diversity and, and, uh, it, it, that occurs in the body of Christ. And sometimes we really can underappreciate something until we need it. And the same thing is true related to God's servants, I think. you Sometimes you can look at a pastor or you can look at an elder or a leader of some kind in a local church and you can think, you know, I wish he was a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that. And so we're going to kind of fix them in our own uh, mind. And sometimes I would venture to guess that the things that we feel that ought to be changed in another person's life, if that thing were changed uh, we would remove the very thing that makes them effective or the very thing that allows them to stand and to continue to what they do, do what they do against all opposition. But God has a funny way of dealing with these things. Sometimes ministers that we lightly esteem at one point in our life, and then all of a sudden some great difficulty hits in our life, And uh, we look up in front and everybody is praying, you know, already taken for prayer, except that one guy that I wouldn't want to go to. And then you go to him. I mean, he is God's chosen vessel, so different than you. But you needed someone so different from you to look at your situation in the light of God's Word and then to speak God's Word into your life. And then they begin to pray for you. Everything they said was right. Everything that they prayed was right. And for the rest of the days of our life will hold them in the highest esteem because of how God used them. And we realize, wow, everything I would have changed in their life would have made them useless to me in the day of my need. The diversity that's needed in the body of, of Christ. And so Paul and Apollos, they weren't competing with each other in their service to the Lord. And, and uh, so he's, Paul was telling them, don't put us at odds with one another. We're not at odds with one another at all. Diversity in the body of Christ is a beautiful thing. He then says in verses 6 and 7, that tells us in essence that any fruit or increase that occurs through a person's life is due solely to God. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. And the word nothing in the Greek means nothing, zero, zip, nada, nothing. Apart from him, we can't do anything spiritually speaking. And so just as the planter and the waterer in a wheat field cannot give life, the same thing he's saying is true in a spiritual realm. In and of ourselves, we cannot produce any spiritual life in another person. That comes from God. And so the fact that we are impacted or that we hear God's voice or God spoke to us through a sermon or through a devotional, that's because the Holy Spirit caused that to happen and not because of the instrument him, uh, uh, himself. And so any fruit that comes from our Christian service isn't because of our experience or our smarts or our hard work or whatever kind of Jacob, you know, heel catcher, manipulator that's inside of us. Uh, It is only done because God honored our efforts and and he brought fruit uh, out of it. Then he tells us in uh, verse 8, the latter portion of verse 8, that the the fact that apart from him we can't do anything isn't to keep us from serving the Lord. Some people say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do and it doesn't matter whether I'm faithful or I'm not faithful to this. And we'll address this a little bit more the next time. And then he closes here in verses 9 through 11 by reminding us that there's no other foundation but Christ. And so Paul changes his imagery from agriculture to architecture, to building. And uh, when the apostle Paul came to Corinth, he preached the person of Jesus Christ, uh, the life of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation was provided for mankind in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. People believed in that gospel. They became Christians, and a church was founded, and it wasn't founded on personality. Nobody knew enough to build it on personality. It was built upon Jesus and upon His gospel and upon His offer of salvation. It was built solely upon Him. And then New leaders came into Corinth after Paul's departure. Some of them were great. Apollos was a great leader that followed Paul. Cephas, Peter, the Apostle Peter apparently followed Paul there for a time and was used in a powerful way there in Corinth. But now there's other leaders that are are leading the church there in Corinth, and they don't seem to be doing a very good job at keeping the main thing the main thing and they're allowing the church to get distracted by personality uh, rather than being pointed uh, to the Lord Jesus. And so all of these lesser issues are now beginning to divide the body because people's eyes are off uh, of the Lord himself. And that exhortation that he gives there in verse 11, there is no other foundation that can be laid, uh, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that was intended to just blow up any I am of Paul or I am of Apollos. And and it's as important to understand today as it was 2,000 years ago. Warren Wiersbe has a quote in this vein that I like. And he spoke in the, of this passage. He said, In more than 30 years of ministry, I've seen churches try to build on a famous preacher or a special method or a doctrinal emphasis that they felt was important, but all of these ministries did not last. Why? Because they're an unworthy foundation. And the Holy Spirit will not honor the building of the lives of His people upon anything other than His Son, upon upon the Lord Jesus Himself. And so these kind of things, this eagerness to focus on men and personalities in, the, in a church and so forth, the body of Christ as a whole, uh, these kind of things merely reveal in a fellowship that Jesus is no longer center stage in that church, but some that center stage has been given to somebody else. A church whose focus is upon the human instruments that God is graciously using in that church is a church that's lost sight of the head of the church, the only one that's worthy of our honor and our glory. I think that Harry Ironside, in his commentary concerning this passage, he made the point, imagine a household divided over servants. It would be crazy for a household to be divided over servants. It would mean the whole thing had been turned upside down. And when a church divides over its servants, it means that the servants have been elevated to the top spot and Jesus has been elevated to the lowest spot and everything is upside down and needs to be turned right side up. And what is true of a a local church can also be true related to an individual Christian life. I want to read a couple passages to you um, from one of F.W. Borm's books because I was reading it a while back and he used two illustrations that really brought home this point. At least it did for me. And so we'll give you a little taste for free of F.W. Borm. But he records two accounts to help us understand this this, the point of this passage. And he quotes the first story as being told by uh, the Reverend James Strahan of Edinburgh who wrote, "...the minister of a seaport town was recently struck by the appearance at his midweek sea service of a stranger with, an heir, uh, with the air of a foreigner who seemed to be thoroughly enjoying the spirit of the whole service." And at the close, when the others had gone, the stranger waited to exchange greetings with the minister who found to his astonishment that the man didn't know a single word of English. He was a Norseman who had stepped ashore for a day and had somehow been led into the gathering of Christian folk. And for a time, the two men could only converse in dumb signs till at length the stranger uttered two words which are the same in his Norse language as in our own English language, and the words were Jesus Christ. And these two men were, with their different languages, their different nationalities, their different churches, uh, uh, everything apparently different, yet there was no difference because they had one faith. The second story is told by uh, uh, Reverend J.D. Jones of uh, Bournemouth who wrote of an old English villager, a rural man who went up to London and he visited one of the great art galleries in London. And while he was in the gallery, he came upon this beautiful painting, a magnificent painting of the crucifixion of Jesus. And as he stood in front of the painting, I mean, you can picture him there, and he gazed upon it his whole soul caught fire. And tears began to come to his eyes. And he said, bless him. And then he began to say, I love him. I love him. I love him. And others in the gallery, they then looked at the man at first a little bit startled with curiosity and then with profound emotion. And a stranger approached the countrymen, grabbed his hand, and exclaimed, So do I. And a third came up, and so do I. And then a fourth, until there stood before the picture of the cross a little knot of men, perfect strangers to one another, whose souls had been united in the love of Christ. What a stark contrast to what was happening there in the city of Corinth. And yet that is what happens where Jesus is the spiritual foundation of a church and of a Christian life. And there is hardly anything more beautiful than that in all of the world, this side of heaven. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Jesus, you said that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Lord, we don't know about all of the ages and eras of human history. We know a little something about our era in human history and the greatness of the need and the world that we live in and all of the need is for you. And so this morning, Lord, we reject anything that would produce division in our heart with the rest of the body of Christ. We reject it, Lord, as unworthy of You, unworthy of Your sacrifice, and we choose, Lord, to be identified with the broad diversity of Your body. We thank You for the body of Christ. We thank You that it's blood-bought. We thank You that You and Your grace found a way for us to be born into it, Lord, and to also serve You as a part of it. And we just pray that our time in Your Word here this morning would just wash away the washing of of Your Word and how it works. Any kind of pettiness or any kind of division or any kind of upside-down thing where we have given a place to men, Lord, that belongs only to You, that all of it would go out of the way so that we can properly represent You as the body of Christ in this world and so that we can thoroughly enjoy the fullness and the beauty and the diversity of the body of Christ, all of which is required in order to express You, Lord, in this needy world. And we ask these things and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.